Welcome to the Daily Stoic Podcast, where each weekday we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, a short passage of ancient wisdom designed to help you find strength and insight here in everyday life. And on Wednesdays, we talk to some of our fellow students of ancient philosophy, well-known and obscure, fascinating and powerful. With them, we discuss the strategies and habits that have helped them become who they are and also to find peace and wisdom in their actual lives. But first, we've got a quick message from one of our sponsors. Dell Tech Fest starts now. To thank you for 40 unforgettable years, Dell Technologies is celebrating with anniversary savings on their most popular tech. For a limited time, only save on select next-gen PCs like the XPS 13, where you can make the everyday easier with Windows 11. Plus, curate your dream setup with great deals on select monitors, mice, and must-have electronics and accessories. When you shop online at dell.com deals, you'll have access to leading-edge technology and free shipping on everything. That's dell.com slash deals. Get your Easter shopping done without leaving the house with DoorDash. When the holidays come around and family comes to town, things can get forgotten. But with DoorDash, you can order your Easter baskets, chocolate bunnies, brunch must-haves, and so much more all in one place delivered right to your door. Actually, last Easter, I was in Annapolis. I was giving a talk and we realized we didn't have some of the Easter supplies we needed for the hotel room we were in to give our kids a little on-the-road Easter experience. And that's what we did. We DoorDashed everything we needed for Easter, just like a couple weeks ago when I hurt my ankle, I door dashed an ankle brace and some medicine. You can get anything you need on DoorDash with so many local and national stores to choose from. You can take it easy this Easter knowing you can get everything you need. Whether you're looking for plastic eggs for your Easter egg hunt or needing an ingredient for a side dish, DoorDash can help. Order now and get everything you need for Easter on DoorDash. Use code DAILYSTOIC to get 50% off up to $10. When you spend 15 bucks on your next convenience, grocery, or retail order on DoorDash, that's code daily stoic order using DoorDash today for eligible users only terms apply. Never wish away a minute of your life. You want this to be over, right? When can this end? When can life go back to normal? We've said this a million times to ourselves, not just during the pandemic, but countless times in ordinary circumstances. When we were excited for Christmas to come already, when we waited for a friend who called ahead to say that they'd be late, while we were listening to that boring lecture. In his book, Travels with Epicurus, the writer Daniel Klein recalls a formative moment. I remember one long-ago evening, he said, on an overcrowded train to Philadelphia, hearing a young woman moan to her mother, God, I wish we were there already. Her white-haired mother replied eloquently, Darling, never wish away a minute of your life. Remember what Seneca, Epicurus's rival and secret fan, would say, Life isn't short, we just waste it. We waste it wishing for things to be otherwise. We waste it waiting for it to be over. We waste it by ignoring what's in front of us. We waste it by resenting, complaining, rejecting. Now is now. Can never be anything else. Now is your life. Live it. Love it. That's all you can do. You won't get anything else. You won't get another moment. Never wish away a minute of your life. It's a gift, should you choose to accept it. To me, this is what that exercise of memento mori is about. It's why I carry that memento mori coin in my pocket. I've got it sitting on my desktop as well. Memento mori, you can leave life right now. Let that determine what you do and say and think. You can check that out in the Daily Stoic store. We have a necklace and a uh, signet ring as well and a poster. You can check that out 
in the Daily Stoic store. Hey, it's Ryan Holiday. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoic podcast. I feel like at the core of Stoicism is this pursuit of rationality. The Stoics believe that our rational mind was the mind we were aspiring to live by. That's why the Stoics talk about logic. This is why the Stoics talk about really taking a minute, taking your impressions, putting them up to the test, thinking through them, not just reacting emotionally, instinctively, reactively. And in fact, when people think of the Stoics as being emotionless, I don't think that's it at all. I think what the Stoics tried to do was not make decisions or take actions based on the heat of an emotion. So a Stoic might get angry, but their rational mind allows them to think through in that, stim- in that space between the stimulus and responses Viktor Frankl talks about, to not take action based on their temper. That almost never gets you the outcome that you want. In fact, uh, Athenodorus recommends this to the emperor uh, Augustus. He says, look, before you get angry, uh, you should repeat all the letters of the alphabet to yourself. And he's saying this, and Seneca's writing about it later in his book on anger, because angry rulers, looking at the evidence, we see rarely make for good rulers. So at the core of Stoicism is this idea of rationality. And that's why today's guest, the one and only Steven Pinker and his new book, Rationality, what it is, why it seems so scarce, and why it matters, uh, is someone I very much wanted to talk to. Um, This new book is great. I read it. I really enjoyed it. We talk about that in the interview. We also talk about his book, The Language Instinct, uh, his book, uh, The Blank Slate, and most famously and and most provocatively and and more recent, his book, Better Angels, uh, is about the decline of violence and the the progress we've made as a a species. Um, Look, I love the Stokes. I love writing about the Stokes. I would not want I would not have wanted to live in Marcus Aurelius's Rome. Um, not and and as I've talked about COVID before, COVID's very serious. I'd much rather live today when we have the remedies to deal with COVID than in Marcus Aurelius's time when they were lighting incense, hoping to keep away the Antonine plague. Um, so we have a really fascinating conversation, and and Stephen Pinker is the top of the top as far as his field goes. He's a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist, one of Time's most hundred influential people in the world, foreign policies, uh, 100 global thinkers, sold a bazillion books. He manages to take really complicated, difficult, uh, even one might say boring topics and make them not just accessible, but fascinating. And I think does so in a way that allows you to apply it that allows you to apply it to your actual life. So I was so excited and honored to talk to the one and only Steven Pinker. He's a professor of psychology at Harvard, um, music lover. We, we nerd out about the band a little bit towards the end. Anyways, here is my interview with Steven Pinker talking philosophy, rationality, self-improvement, and the progress of the human species. So I love this, uh, this Guardian profile of you. I, uh, I I could have um, I, I could have left it, but anyway, <laughs> I, I was not. Uh, it was not a good uh, use of three days of my time. Why? Why not? Well, he uh, presented a lot of things totally chopped out of context. Uh, he um, uh, kind of I think I thought uh, snooped around my my apartment, my office around my private memorabilia and then kind of presented it as if I was some kind of uh, you know, narcissist for displaying it. I didn't know it was kind of none, none of his business in the first place. Uh, 
I uh, kind of snooped around for any dirt that he could find. And I know from a number of former students that he contacted that they spoke to him at length and uh, none of that made it into the interview. So it was it was in general it was an adversarial in, uh, profile. Ah. I knew that that was possible because uh, 25 years ago, I had read Janet Malcolm's famous essay on how journalists uh, like to co cozy up to their subjects and pretend to be friends, but then uh, uh, often often write uh, highly uh, compromising articles. So I, uh, I, so I was prepared for, I mean, you know, a lot of people like, like you, I don't know if you were being sarcastic or not, but a lot of people said, oh, great profile. You, you, you uh, came off so well. And, uh, you know, perhaps that is the, the, uh, uh, the impression I'm being overly sensitive. No, no, I, I actually did think it was <clears throat> large, largely positive, but isn't it interesting when you, when you are the subject of how the news is made and then I think there's something I think was the gal amnesia effect. You see how the news is made when it pertains to you or something you're an expert about. And then you go back to consuming the news as if it wasn't made with a similarly misleading or uh fundamentally flawed process, right? Like uh, speaking of rationality, if our understanding of the world is dependent on the news media and then you just, uh, you know, experienced how the news media works, it does shake your uh, understanding of the world a little bit. Yeah, it does. And that, that is a, there is a kind of insight that you get from being a uh, subject of a, uh, of a media profile. And I remember the first time I was in a documentary, uh, many years ago, it gave me a new appreciation for how films are made. I mean, just seeing it through different eyes, knowing how the, uh, the process works. And it was a, a, a good experience because even um, dramas and fiction, <laughs> uh, just knowing how the cuts must be selected from a much larger recording process, what choices a, a director makes, gives you a, a new set of eyes with which to view the whole medium. Yeah, that's one interesting argument I've heard for why uh, public trust in the media is at an all-time low. Now that effectively we are all content creators of some kind, everyone sort of understands how these algorithms work to a certain degree or, or understands the incentives that are operating under content creators because we've experienced it in our own Facebook feeds or Twitter feeds. We uh, the the uh, illusion of the sacredness of the media or its sort of uh, flawless uh, methodologies has fallen away. And that's partly why we don't trust the media as much. Uh, yeah, that, that, that could be. Although I, th I suspect the bigger factor is the polarization that sure. uh, everyone hates the media that they think are giving unfair coverage to the people they hate. Yeah, you have, an, you have an interesting study in this book where you show was, I think it's gun control and then sort of the pre uh, uh, the presuppositions you bring to it determines how you read that, how you read that data. Well, it is the, it's an example of the my side bias, which is yeah. one of the, the most pervasive of all of the cognitive biases. It affects people regardless of their intelligence. It uh, affects people on both sides of the political spectrum. But yes, in the, uh, the, the clearest illustrations are that if you present a policy proposal and you say it comes from a Democrat, then the, the Democrats think it's a great idea to Republicans. I think it's stupid and vice versa. Or if you present the results from a study that tests some 
policy intervention favored by the, by the uh, left or right. Each side will think that the data support the position that they believed all along, even with the, with the same data. And sometimes even more so if they are highly numerous, uh, it does not protect them from interpreting data to, in the way that they uh, prefer a priori. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about <clears throat> all that. I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on the media, but it, it did strike me that if rationality is always hard, and I think it always has been hard, uh, it's got to be more difficult in a time where, uh, and you quote Steve Bannon, uh, you know, flooding the zone with shit. It's got to be harder to be rational when the zone is flooded with, with shit, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, um, sort of whoever you are, whatever you're trying to study. It, having to wade through misinformation and disinformation and just plainly lots of information, it, it, it makes a sort of a timeless struggle more difficult, I suspect. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's exacerbated by the um, huge amount of editorializing supporting your own point of view, right. that you can uh, get that, uh, you know, that, that dubious form of pleasure or satisfaction from seeing the umpteenth article that that uh, attacks your enemies or uh, ratifies the, the justness, justness of your side. And uh, we have uh, not, not all of it is fake news, but uh, a lot of it is uh, all too much fun to read and, and can't, I think can reinforce people in their prejudices. Yeah, and may, maybe the, the solution to the problem is just everyone should consume a lot less contemporaneous information. I mean, there's something about you know, a three or 400 page book, or uh, in some of some of your books are much, much longer than that. Uh, if I remember uh, the blank slate um, yes. and, and better, better angels. But I think there is something more conducive to rationality when you are reading a long form uh, sort of analog argument, as opposed to reading uh, a, a thing that's been reduced down to 240 characters or a thousand words that you're reading on your phone as you're being besieged by ads or, uh, you know, there's a rabbit hole you could go down at any time. I think we need sort of quiet, dedicated space to explore big ideas. Like if, if we have these cognitive biases, we need room to uh, sort of uh, override them, so to speak. And, and perhaps the the sort of technology and the medium with with which most people get their information is not conducive to that. Yeah, there is that, but traded off against the fact that there is uh, um, uh, so much information available, so much bad information, but so much much uh, good information, even for sure. a dis discerning consumer of uh, um, editorials, of of uh, reporting, of explanatory articles in the sciences. Uh, I sometimes find myself despairing at the uh, lack of time to read all the things that clearly are high quality and interest me. So it, it's a uh, uh, kind of a perverse byproduct of one beneficial aspect of uh, the, the internet, namely that there just is so much interesting stuff around. And so the the uh, shorter articles and the ones now with the actual reading time posted at the top of the article, uh, you know, address the problem. There are only so many hours in the day, and there's some optimal trade-off between breadth and uh, depth. But you're right. There's some ar arguments that can only be pursued at book length. I, I uh, obviously believe that. Otherwise, I wouldn't write these books. No, they're not uh, fun. They're not and, fun to do. 
they're not fun to do. I hope they're fun to read. <laughs> yes. Assume. Uh, and and certainly the what I have avoided, even though I I do have a Twitter account, it's got you know more followers than I thought would be possible. But I avoid the uh, style of Twitter commentary of uh, just issuing a snarky pronouncement on all of the events and uh, other articles that that cross your your uh, screen. Uh, I use it as a um, I, I virtually always uh, will will uh, link to some article that expresses the argument in um, adequate uh, depth and length. So I consider my tweets to be like the taglines published under the headline of a magazine article. This is what sure. this is about. This is why you might be interested in reading it. But the substance of what I, I'm trying to communicate is contained in the longer article. And, and you know, not always a book. But a long enough article that it isn't it isn't the, uh, the the 240 characters. But I feel like even some of the instances where some of the things you've said have been controversial. But then you know anyone that publishes on the internet uh, and says like, here, look, here's all the evidence for what I believe. You, you sort of get people go, I've seen enough. I I saw the headline. I have I have my opinion formed already, and I'm re like I get this with my books. I, I wrote a book a few years ago called Ego Is the Enemy. Um, not not uh, the Freudian ego, but the sort of the colloquial ego. And people, will, I'll get emails. People go, "Well, I haven't read your book, but here's why you're wrong." You know, and, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and, and so you're like, "Is there anything more egotistical than knowing uh, that I'm wrong before you have read it?" But that's what people do. We have our instantaneous reaction to things, and we go, "That's enough." True enough, uh, and there is an art form of. Twitter snark and sarcasm, where you have a pithy comment that uh, uh, usually snide that puts down or dismisses or demonizes some other commentator. Sure, uh, and it's that style that that, that that probably doesn't lead to enlightenment. What I've always felt like the straw man, the sort of Twitter response to uh, better angels, uh, uh, was 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 an odd one because. You have this. It's a beautiful book. It's very long, um, but but there's this sort of straw man that what you're saying is that humanity is just getting better, and therefore we don't have to do anything. Uh, that that progress is sort of preordained, and or or people will try to try to go. Well, what about this bad thing? Uh, how, how does that fit into your argument? But I always felt that what your argument was in that book was that um, the reason things are better is that. Uh, a lot of hard work and effort and changes has gone into making them better. And that while we are the heirs to that tradition, uh, it could also stop at any moment as well. Uh, that, that's exactly right. And I continue to be amazed at, at uh, two, the, the, exactly those two responses, neither, but both of which seem to be really elementary blunders of thinking, but yes. that are surprisingly complex. The one is, well, how can you say things are declined? Uh, bad stuff happens. Well, yeah, but those are to totally compatible. Namely, bad stuff happens, but in the past, even more bad stuff happened. Uh, that is, it's the uh, a decline is not the same as a disappearance. To say that uh, X is less than Y is not the same as saying that X is zero. Right. So there's, there's that um, strange inability to even conceptualize the concept of progress. Namely, things can get better without being perfect. And the other one that you correctly identified, which is surprisingly commonplace, is uh, things got better. Oh, so you're saying they got better by themselves. 
Well, well, no, that doesn't follow. Things can get better, not because they got better by themselves, but because people tried to make them better and if and, and occasionally succeeded. And the implication being, if we want things to get better still, we should figure out what worked in the past so we can do more of it now. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now. Like, for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Look, when I was first thinking of going to therapy, it was a little overwhelming, right? What's covered by insurance? How far do I have to drive? When do they have appointments? I mean, when I first started going to therapy, the idea of online therapy, virtual therapy, it wasn't even an option. And now things are so much easier, so much better. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, be a guiding light. And Talkspace, specifically today's sponsor, can help with any specific challenges you might be facing. It's the number one online therapy platform with licensed therapists in over 40 specialties. And with Talkspace, you can easily find a therapist that you like. You can schedule virtual appointments and make the most of your time, which even as you're taking care of yourself, you always should try to do. And as a listener of this podcast, you'll get 80 bucks off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash stoic. To match with a licensed therapist, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month. Show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Stoic. Yeah, and you obviously talk a, a lot specifically about violence and reduction and, and the sort of changes we made as a society that, that did that. What I thought was really interesting about the new book, Rationality, is, and it, I didn't quite feel that till I got towards the end and you say it explicitly, but you could almost argue that this book is a prequel to better angels, because you're sort of making the argument that of all of the things that have produced the progress and thus the decrease in violence, uh, rationality was the first thing, or all, that almost all of these movements or changes began with some sort of either rational breakthrough, a rational discovery, or a rational argument like, hey, uh, uh, no human should own another human. That's wrong. Um, that that really rationality is is necessary, but not sufficient for progress of the human species. Uh, yeah, and it was a surprise in writing Better Angels. How often a uh, a moral movement, a movement toward greater social justice. Uh, at least temporally originated with an argument, an argument for something that today we would think needs no argument. Like right. you really have to argue why you shouldn't burn heretics at the stake. And the answer is we, people did. And then those are, fortunately those arguments came. It's harder to prove that they were causal in the sense that if, uh, if no one had actually written that viral pamphlet, 
the, uh, the the progress would have been delayed by another century, but it's not not implausible given the chain of events. It doesn't mean that every improvement was uh, conceptualized and argued for. In in the Better Angels, I talked about, for example, the uh, the decline of of tribal raiding and feuding and and then blood feuds, the decline of medieval brigandage and homicide and and uh, deaths from uh, jousting and. Um, and other conflicts among medieval knights, some of which was, may have been a byproduct of the consolidation of kingdoms and states, where, I mean, there was some thought that went into it, namely, it's a nuisance for uh, emperors and kings if their subjects are fighting each other, just as it's you know a nuisance for farmers if his livestock fight each other. He, right. he doesn't care. He doesn't care what, what what their argument is about, and it's just a dead loss for him. Uh, but the fact that it did uh, benefit the peasants if they stopped killing each other as much, uh, it wasn't what was in the mind of the, uh, the 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 kings and emperors. But it was a you know, somewhat happy byproduct. But those are, I mean, th that can happen. That is, that beneficial historical trends can be um, not uh, undesigned or unintended consequences of other, other motives. But many of the ones that we're proudest of, that we think of as genuine moral progress, uh, did not just begin with people spontaneously assembling and um, uh, pushing for the uh, for greater justice, it did originate with someone formulating the argument. Well, it's sort of like all cliches were probably an original quote at some point, right? Somebody's somebody came up with that phrasing, and oftentimes, you know, you can trace a certain cliche back to uh, some person. It's you know, it's always uh, you joke about Albert Einstein. It's always Albert Einstein or Mark Twain or someone, but but occasionally Yogi Berra or Groucho <laughs> Marx. Yes, yeah. But but it's like somebody said it at some point, meaning like somebody had the idea. But that also makes me think, you know, of this idea of the great man of history theory, the idea that like somebody, again, made the argument at some point. Right. So Thomas Jefferson makes the argument that we're all created equally, puts it in a document and it does fundamentally change the direction of humanity. It's not a totally original thought, but but he manages to phrase it and support the argument as such that it convinces uh, other people to go along with it. And that, that, that's, that's a, that rational, the ability to rationally do that. Um, maybe we understate the importance of that. That's right. And, and uh, Jefferson is an excellent example because of course he, he himself was a, a flawed man to put it mildly yes. and the, the country uh, did not live according to his principles, but that was precisely almost to the word what Martin Luther King in his famous um, uh, speech after the March on Washington, namely, this country issued a uh, check. Uh, it was a, so far it's a bad check. We're here to cash it. Yes. Uh, namely, that all that all men are created equal thing. Remember, yeah. remember that you you promised we're here to, to, to hold your feet to the fire for to force you to make good on it. So the idea outlived the uh, original impl implementation. It was there to appeal to, to and, and, it, you know, and, and it did have an effect. I think, of, by the way, the, the general influence of uh, arguments on history, not so much as great man, but um, I think it was, uh, 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 who said, uh, was it Victor Hugo? No, there's nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come. Yes. And it isn't, I mean, in the case of Jefferson, of course, there is that statue of him in Washington, and he's on the, uh, the, um, the $10 bill? No, what did, what, uh, 
Is he on our, is he on our currency? He is. I, I forget. I, I haven't seen him. cash in so long. I forget. Yeah, true. <laughs> right. Anyway, he's, you know, everyone knows who Thomas Jefferson yes. is. But the thing is, it, it wasn't about him. Uh, it, it was about the idea. And there are movements where the idea having been loosed in the the, the kind of intellectual marketplace of ideas, people may not remember who originally formulated the idea takes on a life, a life of its own. And in the case of feminism, for example, I cite the first English feminist, Mary Astell, who co-opting one of John Locke's arguments for why we shouldn't have slavery or absolute monarchy. Uh, she said, well, geez, if there's a good argument against um, slavery in the, in the country, why sh should there be slavery in the home? Uh, if it's not good for a, uh, a man to be under the arbitrary whim of a king, why is it okay for a woman to be ar under the arbitrary whim of her husband or father? And you know, the, the idea did, the idea did uh, catch on, but we don't call it Astellism. And right. we don't you know, kind of march around with, with uh, posters of Mary Astell. It's kind of, I don't want to say it's irrelevant that she made it. She deserves enormous credit. But what counts is not that you know, this particular woman said it, but that it was a good idea. Someone sure, had, sure. had to have said it. She was the one. Yeah, it's almost as if like in the way that obviously someone invents the hammer or the wheel or some some yes. early man invents a tool. And then that tool uh, history is people applying that tool in different contexts to solve different problems or building on it or tweaking on it. These ideas are almost like the building blocks of our collective progress. And someone saying, hey, you know, you shouldn't be able to do this to white people. Hey, you shouldn't be able to do this to black people either. Hey, you actually shouldn't be able to do this to people at all. You know, men or or women, you shouldn't be able to do it to people in different countries. And, and we're sort of it's like we're constantly applying or extrapolating out the uh, I don't know what the word is, uh, but but the the telos of the tool into different contexts and and getting different results out of it. That's exactly right. The uh, philosopher Peter Singer called it the expanding circle back in a book in the late seventies, defending sociobiology. Uh, and um, of course, the next logical step is well, why stop at um, Homo sapiens? Other animals are sentient too, and uh, many of the arguments that we make against torture and, and slavery for uh, other races should be extended to other species. That is, there is a, a kind of self-expansion, I call it moral dark energy, in the notion of respecting uh, interests of sentient beings, uh, that, that all of the lines that um, separate sentient beings into categories are at least morally arbitrary. Are there, are there any ideas like that or expand, like if we're thinking about the moral progress we've had versus where is this energy going in the future, are there areas or ideas or things that you see, I don't want to say as promising, but just almost less judgmental, where do you see the areas that we're expanding into or where, where do you see the forward progress potentially going? Uh, the... Um... The idea behind effective altruism, namely that we try to measure the effects of our interventions and do the ones and keep the ones that actually do the most good, save the most lives, sure, uh, is a is a promising idea, and, and it is a rel relatively new idea. Like you know, go out, go out and measure and see if, if what you're doing actually benefits the people you want to and ranking benefit. it in comparison to other interventions like that this charity has an roi of x and this charity has an roi of y and and yeah 
Exactly. And taking into account things that people often forget, such as if there is a, um, a, a, a newsworthy story featuring some pathetic and highly photogenic sure. victims, it, of course, it's good to help them. But remember that the very fact that it was in the news means that lots of people are rushing to help that little girl or, or this sure. particular community. And it may be that so many people have seen the news and have been uh, motivated to, to uh, hit the donate button that it's kind of the aid organization may have been saturated and you might be better off donating to some movement that that uh, does not get the same publicity on a particular day, but sure. saving lives seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, no one of those days of which makes it into the papers, but the dollar would, would be uh, helping, uh, saving far more lives. So that's another new idea about uh, beneficence and, uh, and, and uh, philanthropy and, um, and, and another would be to try to explicitly take into account our own biases in order to work around them. The, the identifiable victim effect being one of them, namely we are probably too affected by the, the photogenic uh, victim in terms of the, which may subvert the greater goal of helping as many people as possible, but also our um, uh, vulnerability to the availability bias, that which is that we estimate probability by how easily examples come to mind. The news feeds the availability bias because that's kind of what it is. It's an availability machine. And it may be that solutions to big problems, including climate change, including um, um, uh, uh, safety and terrorism, uh, might be hidden from us because we glom too easily onto a uh, gory image from the headlines that morning, as opposed to the uh, uh, underlying reality as revealed in data. Yeah, I'm, I know it's not exactly new, and I know it's sort of a, a boogeyman for some people, so it kind of be becomes almost fundamentally irrational, the response. But it also strikes me that some of the reckoning or conversation we're having with what they're calling critical race theory, again, I think it, a relatively bad name, but the idea that there are interlocking or interrelated forms of oppression or injustice that just one's intent on a given action uh, is not the whole story, that, that there could be legacies of issues or, or sort of different, different uh, uh, again, structural or systemic issues. So, so that, uh, again, the, the, the thing might have started with good intentions, but the outcome is fundamentally uh, unjust because it doesn't address for uh, preceding uh, inputs. That strikes me as an, a relatively innovative or new way of thinking about uh, injustice and progress. I'd be curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, I, I tend to have a more critical view of critical race theory and critical uh, theory in, in general. The, 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 the problem with the movement is that by uh, uh, seeking to demonize, that is trying to root out uh, racism, a highly loaded and, and emotional and condemnatory term for what might be unplanned outcomes, it uh, can easily turn into a hunt for villains instead of an attempt to understand cause and effect. And uh, it may also misapply uh, uh, energy for, for uh, reform to rooting out ever more 
subtle forms of, of a racist because it really, I, by, by using the term racism for any kind of uh, racial discrepancy, it's a, it's a movement that basically attempts to, to, uh, to demonize who are the bad guys. They may not realize they're bad, uh, but we should all condemn them. Whereas some of the discrepancies might be the unplanned results of, um, of um, social and historical forces where there isn't a bad guy now. There may have been bad guys 250 years ago or 100 years ago, but kind of uh, doing this moral reckoning may not be the way to achieve real equality and to reduce poverty and crime and incarceration for vulnerable minorities like African-Americans. Um, the, uh, there's a, a saying that I uh, quoted in the, in the Better Angels of Our Nature from the great uh, pacifist statistician Lewis Fry Richardson, who uh, responded to the cliche to understand uh, is to forgive. And he said, well, you know, maybe, maybe not, but to, uh, uh, to, to condemn too much is to understand too little. If what you're always doing is trying to root out racists to shame, you may be oblivious to what is really happening and, and therefore point to the wrong causes and therefore be uh, impotent in actually trying to improve the lives of, of the people that you're hoping to benefit. With everyone fighting for attention, how can your business stand out and connect with customers? Easy. Get Constant Contact. Constant Contact's award-winning marketing platform has helped millions of small businesses stand out, stay top of mind, and see big results fast. Constant Contact makes it easy to promote your business with powerful tools like email and SMS marketing, social media posting, and even events management. These tools would have been super helpful to me when I was growing The Daily Stoke, when I was writing my first book, and in fact, have been right? The Daily Soak is built around email marketing. That may well be how you heard of this very podcast. With Constant Contact, you'll reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and communicate more effectively to sell more, raise more, and fast-track growth. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Every business is constantly asking themselves, what's a thing I can do to take my business to the next level? It's something I'm thinking about, of course, over at Daily Stoic and Daily Dad and the Painted Porch. And one of the tools I use for just that is LinkedIn Jobs, because LinkedIn Jobs knows that your success depends on the team you surround yourself with. That's why LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. You might have just listened to the episode I put up where I was given a talk at LinkedIn back in 2017. So I've been using LinkedIn a long time because LinkedIn isn't just another job board. It has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. And hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. It's so easy. In fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. We've hired multiple people here at Daily Stoic from LinkedIn. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply yeah it's it's a tricky it's a tricky thing because uh, i think it's sort of political execution has been counterproductive uh at 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 best uh sloppy or outright uh uh flawed at at, at worst um but but the idea of to sort of go to what you're saying that that to me it strikes me as a kernel of value in the idea that there could be injustice without a bad guy Right. Like that, that strikes me as an insight as far as how yeah. we understand history, how we understand systems, how we 
understand moving what we should try to do or build going forward. The idea that a racist is not always a bad boogeyman, but that there could be racist ideas or structures or systems in place that no one would choose, but because they are legacies of other things, we have them. That that strikes me as an idea of, of as having some value. I think the idea, I agree, the idea absolutely has value. Although to call it racist, which is a... Uh, a condemnatory term. It's a vile thing to be a racist, but to uh, identify uh, policies, structures, laws that disadvantage African-Americans as racist means that you are saying that there's a bad guy. And in practice, sure. that's exactly what's happened. People get canceled even right. for discussing the tenets of critical race theory. If you disagree with this dogma, that makes you a racist. Now, a racist is a, a vile thing to be. Right. Uh, the fact that these accusations are being uh, leveled, I think, rather recklessly, not only uh, is, is unfair to the its uh, targets, who may be legitimately disagreeing with some uh, dogma. But of course, as we know, history has taught it. That leads to a reaction, such as the election of uh, Donald Trump from people who are saying, well, I'm sick and tired of being called a racist. I'm not a racist and I'm not going to vote for a party that keeps de keeps demonizing me. It calls me a, a deplorable. Well, no, I think as a linguist, uh, the idea that the language with which you describe the idea is so powerful and, and has an impact on whether it will be successful or not. I it's like you could contrast Black Lives Matter, which is effectively a perfect political slogan because there is no argument. You're like even the all lives yes. matter argument sort of puts you in a trap. Contrast that with, say, the defund the police argument, um, you know, like the, the, the language that a group decides to use or the way it decides to communicate an idea. Again, critical race theory doesn't sound even if it's not being blown up on Fox News as, as, with bad faith. It still doesn't sound something like something you'd want to subject your children to. Uh, it just sounds bad. It's ominous and scary at, at worst, unexciting and boring at best. Um, the language with which we use to describe these ideas, um, I, I guess that says we're irrational, that the language matters, but the language does matter. It, it does. And, uh, you know, I think uh, a year or, or 18 months ago, no one would have had any associations to critical race theory. It's some, you know, that's some highfalutin academic idea. Why should we care? Right. But people, you know, have correctly, uh, at least approximately correctly, know, known that there is some very new approach and idea often being forced on them in schools and um, workplaces involving collective guilt, uh, involving um, uh, deliberate segregation by race. Uh, and um, they needed a name for it to say that critical race theory is this abstruse academic doctrine only debated in graduate seminars. It strikes me as a little disingenuous because these are quite these are distinctive and radical ideas. They do historically and intellectually originate from critical race theory. Obviously, once they're implemented, they're not going to. Uh, reproduce all of the uh, abstruse theoretical foundations, but you need to call it something, and, uh, and, and that's kind of what it is. Uh, and the case of defund the police, it's uh, another case in which there, there I think it's kind of different because you don't have to be in the know to and, and have it explained to you. Quite well, perhaps quite quite the opposite. Uh, there, the 
explanation is, oh, defund the police doesn't mean defund the police. <laughs> right. Oh, great. Thanks. Uh, first, get the slogan out there. Then, yeah. Uh, nearly, which, of course, nearly cost uh, the Democrats the election. This is an election that everyone thought was going to be a blowout. Uh, right. it, it was it almost went the other way. Uh, and there are some we don't know for sure, but there's some pretty good data that that uh, fears about defunding the police and, and similar policies scared a number of uh, people on, on the fence into not voting for Biden unjustly because he himself, of course, did not support that policy. Sure. So so in the way that we can have these kind of positive feedback loops with an idea being then spread through sort of through society, does it and that seems to be the cycle that we've been on for about you know 2000 years, we sort of have been the rationality and enlightenment has been taking us uh, in a positive direction, um, largely because of the sort of extrapolations of the ideas that we're talking about, whether it's free speech or freedom of association or freedom of religion or or equal rights or, or any of these in inventions. And they were inventions, although obviously some some people think they come to us from God, but somebody decided that 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 was what God wanted and communicated it. Do you think it's equally possible to get in a negative feedback loop? Like could could sort of anti-enlightenment values uh, or, or uh, you know, um, something like, I don't know, I don't want to put too much on critical race theory, but let, let's say you, you get a different set of ideas and then those begin to extrapolate. Um, and, and let's say they're fundamentally irrational or fundamentally anti-progress. Could, could, could it go the other direction? Oh, you bet. And, and it has. Uh, the, uh, well, the, the, um heyday of Marxism in the uh, mid, mid dec middle decades of the 20th century. Marxism originated, you know, was, was highly theoretical. Uh, that's why intellectuals loved it. You could uh, debate it in graduate seminars and probe uh, what Marx really meant, the young Marx and the old Marx and all the different uh, um, offshoots of Marxism and different versions and Gramsci and uh, the way it was uh, incorporated into critical theory and postmodernism, kind of all too intellectually rich. Sure. But it, it did pull people into a, a, a rabbit hole and it led to horrific consequences. One sign of any, you, know, so you might take a step back. There are people who say, well, rationality is totally overrated. Yeah, you've got the Enlightenment, but then you also have you know, fascism, which Gosh. had its theor theoreticians. You also have communism. Now, one here's a, what I think is a crucial difference. It um, uh, probably uh, it would take a good historian to establish this uh, firmly, but I suspect that any movement that kills its critics or fires or shuts them up, uh, is prob that's probably a sign that this is a decadent intellectual movement that's not going to lead to something good. And right. the thing about the, at least the strands of the Enlightenment that I would be prepared to celebrate is that they developed in liberal democracies that did have freedom of the press and free speech and open criticism and debate. So that if some idea was disastrous, then someone could say so without being sent to the gulag or shot in the back of the neck or canceled. And that when you have a movement that says you may not uh, criticize it, it is evil to criticize this set of ideas. That's when you know it's vulnerable to getting locked into error because no one can point out the error. Sure. And and uh, and people are afraid to even come close to pointing out the error uh, because exactly yeah. right yeah so so how does that work then in tension with something that you talk about in rationality which is that sort of rationality is a public good that our sort of rational system is a public good and what do you do then when you have 
and and my first book was about um, sort of media manipulation, and I was looking uh, quite heavily at the sort of the the, the turn of the uh, 19th century and the, the early 20th century when you have the yellow press. Um, a lot of people were writing, and Upton Sinclair did it most interestingly. Yes. That that like that these uh, in the same way that the trusts were sort of poisoning our food supply with 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 industrialization. So too was the media sort of poison poisoning uh, our sort of public sphere. What do we? What is your thought today? When yeah, rationality is important. These Enlightenment values are important, but then we are held hostage effectively by anti-rational movements who are poisoning that sphere, whether it's, you know, the social media networks that enable it, or, you know, it's the anti-vaxxer, the, uh, you know, the, the people who are, I don't even want to say acting in bad faith, because you talk about Pizzagate in the book. I'm not sure they're, they're operating on a level where they know that this is uh, wrong. And it, it, you're just, you're just dealing with the consequences of toxic irrationality effectively. Yes, and indeed, they're, and you're right that the, some of them aren't acting in bad faith and that they sincerely believe the, um, the, the nonsense and the harmful ideas that they're propagating. <laughs> it's not that they're kind of cynical manipulators, right. uh, but rather that they're uh, you know, all too firmly entrenched in their beliefs. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's no easy solution because on the one hand, we want only you know, kind of correct and beneficial ideas out there. Right. On the other hand, none of us is an angel who's capable of always knowing which ideas are correct and which ones are beneficial, right. which is why we need a... You know, the, the, as the cliche has it, the mar a marketplace of ideas while we need freedom of the press and, and free speech so that when there are flaws, someone else can point them out. How you prevent, but then how, how do you prevent a um, the, the emergence of an idea that's you know, popular and wrong or popular and harmful? Yeah. Uh, you, you, part of the answer is you have the... Uh, 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 the, the the opening, the ability, the freedom to point out what's wrong with uh, with ideas. You try to spread a culture of of um, critical thinking, not to be confused with critical theory, um, yeah. open mindedness of um, uh, a, a evidence oriented mindset, set of values like when the facts change, I change my mind. You know, what do you do? Uh, media literacy in school, uh, how not to believe something just because you saw it on the internet, or for that matter, read it in the necessarily in, in the main, mainstream media too, because they, they sometimes get things wrong. What are the tools that will allow you at the end of the day to uh, evaluate I, I, ideas? Now, what I've said is this is what we should aim for. We In a democracy, we really don't have a guaranteed way of making sure that the popular idea is the correct idea. We probably never will, absolutely, but sure. at least steered in that direction. I think part of the answer, um, to be at least a little less, less vague, is that, um, and this, this is an argument that has been uh, advanced by Jonathan Rauch in his book, The Constitution of Knowledge, in which I make in, my, in, in, in somewhat different words, which is that you know, it, what cognitive psychology has told us, and which many of uh, astute observers of human nature have uh, noted before that, is we are all subject to fallacies and biases, particularly favoring the, the sacred beliefs of our own uh, coalition and, and demonizing the, the, uh, the others. You know, on the other hand, we, we have uh, done better. Science really is better than superstition. Liberal democracy really is better than hereditary monarchy. 
we um, how, how do we do it? Despite the fact that we're we're made out of crooked timber, well, we have institutions that are explicitly committed to moving us in the direction of the truth, and that have mechanisms and rules and norms that that push us in that direction. And examples being, say, scientific societies uh, that allow for, that they have peer review and open criticism and empirical testing, liberal democracy with its freedom of the press and, and political debate, uh, 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 government agencies that are committed to accurate record keeping and that uh, themselves uh, check for error, responsible journalism. You talked about yellow journalism, which you, you have uh, written about. But of course, we, and some, some would say we still live in an era of yellow journalism, but it's probably, I think you'd agree it's- Much better. It's better, yeah, it's yeah. better. Why is it better? And, and Roush talks about that as a, as a uh, journalist himself. Well, the, the journalistic uh, uh, institutions around the 1920s kind of realized they got to get their house in order. There's right. too much what we today call fake news. I mean, sort of credulous stories about you know, sea monsters and two-headed babies. and They police themselves, they, effectively. They police themselves, exactly. Yeah. And they instituted codes of ethics and newspapers had uh, hierarchies of editing and fact-checking to try to weed out all of these errors that Left, left to our own devices, we make them, all of us. And so it's the institution that is our hope. Uh, and, and these are institutions that have to have certain mechanisms, certain, first of all, overarching commitments. They have to be designed with the goal, we should aim for uh, objective truth. Uh, granted, none of us ever has it, none of us ever sure. knows that we have it, but let's Let's strive for it. And here are ways that we can use, capitalize on the fact that people, even if they're irrational themselves, they're not so bad at pointing out the irrationalities of other people's uh, beliefs. <laughs> Let's capitalize on that kind of adversarial nature to have you know, adversarial proceedings in uh, court system, peer review in science, um, the, as James Madison put it in the design of the American Constitution with its checks and balances, right. uh, let's let ambition counter ambition. So these are the, um, the, the, the kind of mechanisms that are our best hope for attaining rationality, given that none of us by ourselves can do it. No, I think that's very well said. And it goes to your point, like somebody obviously created those institutions at some point. Right. So those are, you know, forms of progress. But it made me think about the role of institutions. I was at a dinner. I may have told the story on the podcast before, but I was at a dinner with a with a, a Trump cabinet official uh, and a, a bunch of Republicans a, a few uh, months ago. People I, I happen to disagree with, but I, I like spending time with people I disagree with. And um, you know, they were talking about the the very real concerns about Facebook banning the president of the United States. And they said, you know, I don't know if you want these private institutions banning your your politicians. And I was like, look, I agree. There are real concerns here. This is not a great precedent. But the reason that Facebook, a private, you know, a digital company had to do that is because you and your party at every step of the way 
failed to do your institutional duty, right? Like the, the point of political parties at the state level, at the national level, uh, the, the point of conventions, the point of, uh, of all of these groups is that at some point along the line, you would have hoped that one of them would have said, this is insane. Uh, this person is not at all uh, remotely qualified or, or to be trusted with nuclear weapons. And you didn't do that. And that's why eventually coming out of an insurrection, Facebook had to ban this person. And so I think your point that institutions, while not firmly governmental, do have an obligation to protect this common good. And perhaps the the tragedy of our rational commons is that those institutions have not been doing their job. Well, there's, there's a lot of truth in that, but it, it does then raise the issue of uh, you know, who gets to decide on what criteria that, say, sure. the institution of a particular political party has uh, failed and therefore we must step in? Because sure. you wouldn't want to open the door, say, to if, you know, if Facebook or Twitter leaned uh, right and someone said, well, we're going to ban Joe Biden. And the problem is that you Democrats didn't do your job in preventing this sure. dangerous villain, Joe Biden, from attaining the presidency. So I think the way I would put it, I mean, it, it doesn't contradict what you said, but yeah. it might kind of address the problem of you know, who decides in what way, how do you prevent these platforms from not themselves becoming political weapons? Is in the case of Trump, what they did point to and what they should point to even more strongly. It's not that you know Trump is a menace and he's he's an evil stooge or whatever, but rather we do have a line in, that we can't cross on our platform, namely advocating the violent overthrow of the government or advocating right. violence in general. Sure. So he crossed that line. He happened to be a Republican. If a Democrat crossed that line, we would do the same thing. This isn't. This is one of the perhaps legitimate carve outs for. Uh, restricting speech. And indeed, First Amendment jurisprudence recognizes certain um, uh, sure. circumscribed areas and advocating violence, particularly if it's advocating violence to overthrow a democratic government, could be one of those zones where that's, you know, in general, we don't want to police speech, but there's certain, uh, there's certain th places you can't go, or at least you can't go on our platform. Right. Well, the irony, though, of the democratic institutions, uh, although the democratic, the democratic arm certainly has extremists, it, you know, you look at the 20 or whatever candidates that that ran in, in 2020 and the institutions actually did. Uh, select and select and select until the most moderate of all of those candidates was ultimately sort of put to the fore. And so it, it strikes me as, uh, you know, one of the problems of the Democratic Party right now is that uh, at the highest level, it's moderate, but then at the lower levels, it's less moderate. And the inability to bridge this gap is why they can't pass legislation. But the purpose to me of these institutions uh, and maybe it's the point of also grammar and manners and all the things you talk about in your books. It's to moderate these what the ancients would have called passions of the of the human species and of the the human mind. Uh, quite so, exactly. And and I guess one could argue that the uh, all the complicated, clanky Rube Goldberg and and corruptible um, primary process resulted in something that you know, was not bad uh, right. an outcome and and in democratic governance not bad is is pretty good yes. uh, because as uh, 
John, John Mueller, a political scientist that has influenced me a lot, wrote a book called, a, a, a sadly obscure book called Democracy, Capitalism, and Ralph's Pretty Good Grocery. The allusion being to the Prairie Home Companion, uh, the town of Lake Wobegon with a grocery store whose motto was, if you can't get, it was called Ralph's Pretty Good Grocery, and its motto was, if you can't get it here, you probably don't need it. Uh, and what Mueller argued is that uh, democracy, and he also argued about capitalism, you know, has these horrific, horrible flaws, but it's kind of pretty good, especially compared to the alternatives. Yes. And so if we have an outcome in governance, you know, run by human beings with all their flaws, that's you know, kind of pretty good, not bad, okay, could be worse. That might be the best that we could humanly hope for. And that when we seek something that's perfect, then we're liable to become totalitarians. Yeah. And if you look at COVID, it's like we did really bad in some areas and really good in other areas. And it kind of washed out to like, I don't want to say middle of the pack, but uh, it, it, it if we had been more in a, if the government or or if, the, if we'd been more enabled in certain areas, the the bad things might have been worse. And if we had less power in other areas, it, the the outcomes might also have been worse. So it's kind of like uh, what was the Churchill line about how it's the least bad system? It's the worst form of government except for all the others <laughs> yeah. that have been tried. Yeah. In the case of COVID, I mean, you know, the, the question is how do we kind of assess how we're doing to know what our reform should be. In the case of COVID, certainly comparing rates across states, across countries, evaluating uh, you know, as, as, as openly as possible, well, what, what did work in the end and what didn't, given that at the outset we were kind of ignorant about everything. Uh, we tried various things. Let's let's go to the data and see what, what worked better than others. And, and in the case of the United States, I think the case can be made it was not uh, not even uh, not bad. It, it was bad in the sense that we can look at other countries and see that they did better. No, I just mean like I, you could argue the the sort of containment of the virus we did the worst of the development world of the developed world, and then as far as addressing and then preventing uh, the uh, let's call it let, it's, a, it's sort of the prevention of the virus uh, or containment of the virus pre vaccine post-vaccine, and then, of course, now the logistics of executing the vaccine. But but certain the, things yeah. we did better than average and other things we did much worse than average. Yeah. Well, developing, rolling out the vaccines, we did you know, pretty well. But then, of course, well, we, we know what's happened since. Yes. <laughs> Irrati irrationality uh, inserts itself. It Indeed, it does. And uh, yeah, a, no a number of things went wrong. I mean, it, it really should have been under control by now. But... Well, that's so one of my favorite quotes from Marcus Aurelius, who was also writing during the Antonine Plague. He says there's sort of two types of plagues. Uh, there's the one that uh, can take your life, which, as we understand, he probably did die of the Antonine Plague. But he's like, the worst one is the one that destroys your character, uh, that sort of affects you as a person. And it does strike me when you look at, you know, some of these people that say things on the Internet or some of these uh, you know, the videos uh, are sufficient. You go, oh, this person caught something else. It's not COVID, but it's worse. Yes. Well, and, and my uh, my friend, uh, philosopher Andrew Norman, wrote a book called, I think, Mental Immunity, where he pushes very hard the analogy between uh, virulent pathogens and virulent ideas and a well-functioning um, biological, physiological immune system and a kind of cognitive immune system. 
So uh, two last questions to bring us back to where we started uh, about the Guardian piece. You noted something that I have found in my own experiences, which is that my books have sold disproportionately well in the UK also. Oh, why, yes. why is that? Are they just more philosophical over there? Or is it a different media culture, a different bookstore culture? What do you think it is? Yeah, it's 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 a it's a good question. And I don't know um, whether the, uh, it, it's more... Um, word-friendly, literate, uh, intellectual culture where you get, you know, perhaps because of a, you know, a, a one beneficial byproduct of a, of a class system that had a lot of downsides, sure. uh, is that there a certain prestige did accrue to being you know, articulate, uh, knowledgeable. Um, it could be, or it could be more geographical. I mean, London in, is the, uh, kind of has... It's the, the equivalent of New York, Boston, L.A., uh, Bay Area, all rolled into one, namely right. that uh, the politicians, the finance people, the academics, the literary uh, intellectuals, sure. all kind of rub shoulders. They go to the same parties, whereas in the United States, we've got you know, finance in New York, entertainment in Hollywood, academia in Boston, and so on. And it's not just that those are different cities, but they're geographically hundreds or thousands of miles apart. And so they each have their own media market as well. So I just found that uh, the UK is a bit more old school. I don't, it's like you're more famous in the UK than you are in the US, even if you've sold uh, fewer books because media is so much more concentrated and there's less competition. Interesting. And there are, there are still, I think because of the BBC, uh, media channels that I don't want to say everyone, but that a lot of people yeah. listen to. So everyone, well, I don't, again, not, not yes. everyone, but lots of people tune in to start the week and, to, you know, night news. And there's a still a more concentrated media landscape than, than what happened in the United States. It might be what the U.S. market was like 20 or 30 or 40 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, all right. Last thing. So you, you're a fan of the band. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. And uh, yeah, fellow, fellow Canadians for the five of them. Yes. <laughs> so uh, by modern standards, this is my trick, trick question uh, said facetiously, but by modern standards, isn't the night they drove old Dixie down an act of cultural appropriation? <laughs> it sure is. It's actually got pretty, you know, dopey lyrics. If you actually listen to them, if the, bell, if the bells were ringing during a military defeat. I mean, like a lot of rock songs, you don't want to look at the lyrics too carefully because they make sure. no sense. Yeah. Uh, in, well, it is. And, you know, culture is appropriation. I mean, all of culture is a, uh, a pastiche, a greatest hits collection. Uh, uh, the insular, provincial, parochial parts of the world don't develop great culture because it's the same old stuff uh, you know, concentrated and recycled. Great art always uh, picks and chooses from the best of the, of the cultural tradition. It kind of sits at the confluence, uh, catchment area of a huge number of uh, ideas and motifs and themes. And the band uh, is actually a great example because they were so eclectic. They played so many instruments. They were influenced by so many genres of music. No, uh, and they appropriated <laughs> left, right, and center. You know, well, right. no, and I, I love that as an example because it's like, yeah, if I told you a Canadian band, and I think the lead singer is an indigenous person, right? Or he's from, he's, uh, I'm forgetting his name, but um, uh, Robbie it, Robertson? Yeah. 
Um, well, Robbie Robertson, he is, well, that may be a good example. He was the the main songwriter and the kind of the, the ringleader to the band. He was part indigenous. He was part Jewish. He was part Anglo-Saxon. And, you know, that didn't hurt. Right. No. And, 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 the, and of course, these Canadians were celebrating the great tradition of rural American music, none of which they, except for Levon Helm, they experienced themselves. They grew up in rural Ontario or, right. or urban Ontario. What did they know about, you know, the, the, the Dixie, music of the Dixie? No. And, and that's what I, it's like, so you have this Canadian, potentially indigenous guy writing a song about the fall of the American South in the Civil War. That doesn't piss people off the way that, uh, you know, a, a white person rapping or a black person doing uh, loving Kung Fu or something. It doesn't piss <laughs> us off. Because it's not actually the cultural appropriation is not offensive. It's actually a key artistic uh, form of progress. And it's it's almost always done. Uh, I would say when it's done well, it's just called art. And when it's done bad, it's called bad art. Right. And and, and uh, we would be lost without it. I, I couldn't agree more. That's a, a beautifully put. Well, that will wrap up there. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much. I've, I've loved your books uh, for a very long time, and this one is very good. And uh, I do hope we can uh, continue to preserve. I hope we can do a better job preserving our rational commons as we have with our uh, environmental commons and, uh, and natural resources, because <laughs> it's all we have left. Thanks so much, Ryan. A great discussion. Very uh, deep, deep and probing. I enjoyed speaking with you. It was an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you could leave a review for the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. The the reviews make a difference. And of course, every nice review from a nice person helps balance out the crazy people who get triggered and angry anytime we say something they disagree with. So if you could rate this podcast and leave a review on iTunes, that would mean so much to us and would really help the show. We appreciate it. And I'll see you next episode. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to The Daily Stoic early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. From Wondery, this is Black History For Real. I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm Conscious Lee. What do most (laughs) people think about when they hear the words Black History? Rosa Parks, Reconstruction, MLK, February, Black History Exactly, exactly. There are so many stories of Black history that we just are not really talking about or thinking about, especially outside of February. And we are about to flip the script on all of that. Because on this show, you're going to hear a little less... In August 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And a little bit more. She is a heroine to some. As a fighter for black rights, she is a villain to others. Follow Black History for Real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen everywhere on February 5th, or you can listen early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting January 29th. Join Wondery Plus on the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Black History.